we should focus less on the technologies and more on who is being empowered by them. And that will often be the companies that are developing and deploying and making choices about the choices we'll have, the control we will have. What might this mean practically? Well, if you have a small number of automated driving companies, right? If again, our number of drivers goes from several hundred million to six, they will have incredible power over the way that we physically get around. And there's been lots of discussion about the power of platform or intermediary companies in how we digitally interact, but the physical world still matters too. Autonomous vehicles hardly live up to their name. The goal of true driverlessness was originally hyped in the 1930s, but keeps getting kicked further and further into the future as the true complexity of driving comes into ever sharper and more daunting focus. In 2022, even the most capable robotic cars are not self-determining agents, but linked into swarms and acting as the tips of a vast and hidden web of design, programming, legislation, and commercial interest. Infrastructure is more than the streets and signs, but includes licensing requirements, road rules, principles of product liability, and many other features that form the landscape to which driverless cars continue to adapt and which they will increasingly alter. While most ethical debates about them seem to focus on the so-called trolley problem of how to teach machines to make decisions that minimize human casualties, there are many other wicked problems to consider. Is automated driving a technological solution or a policy solution? Should policymakers have the same expectations for automated and conventional driving? How safe must an automated vehicle be for deployment? Should humans or computers have ultimate authority over a given action? Should harm that a human could have prevented somehow outweigh harm that a human caused? Given that a hacker could infect entire fleets, maps, or real-time communication between cars, how much new risk are we willing to take to reduce the more traditional safety hazards with which we are familiar? And perhaps most surreally, how do you ticket a robot? And who should pay? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on Complexity, we speak to Bryant Walker-Smith at the University of South Carolina School of Law and the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford, whose work centers on the ethics of autonomous vehicles. We link up to explore the myriad complexities, technological, regulatory, and sociocultural, surrounding the development and rollout of new mobility platforms that challenge conventional understanding of the boundaries between person, vehicle, institution, and infrastructure. Buckle up and lean back for a dynamic discussion on the ever-shifting loci of agency, privacy, and data protection, the relationship between individuals, communities, and corporations. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu give. There are many more ways to engage with us 
at santafe.edu slash engage, including eight job openings currently listed on our website. Thank you for listening. Let's just jump right in, shall we? Let's do it. Bryant Walker-Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Complexity Podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation. Why don't you start by seeding us with a little bit of background about yourself, about your intellectual biography, your curiosity, how you came to ask the kind of questions that you're asking in your work and that we're going to be asking on the show today. Wow. So I used to be a transportation engineer, which means I am responsible for paving over a good chunk of Wisconsin, and I apologize for that. And so my grounding is still very much in engineering. And at the time, I really got very disillusioned by the car and wanted to have more of a policy role. But I still retained an interest in transportation. So over a decade ago, when I started learning more about automated driving, I was intrigued in part because it was transportation and in part because I thought I might be wrong. And that's always exciting. People always say that the car epitomizes freedom. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't if you're stuck in traffic or you can't drive or you're breathing in pollutants or you're dead because of a crash. But automated driving said to me, well, it's not going to be a panacea. It absolutely cannot be. But maybe if it's done right, it could bring some of that promise to our society of greater mobility and greater safety and greater opportunity. So that idea that I might be wrong about the car was enough to get me intrigued. And what that really grew into was an excitement about the relationship between law and technology, what I call the law of the newly possible. And that means it's in some ways technology agnostic, right? We could be 10,000 years ago and the horse is domesticated and we're exploring the relationship of the horse to society. Or we could be, you know, 100 years in the future and... Aliens give us incredible technologies and we're exploring how those are going to change our lives. Or we could be, you know, roughly in the present and talking about all of the exciting technologies that are coming our way to challenge and help us. And it's that relationship that really, really gets my attention. And so how did you end up in the ambit of SFI? I guess between engineering and the rest of that stuff, I went and became a lawyer and then a professor how did SFI reach out? I think it was a lot of work I've done on risk, on understanding what risk means, and then my approach to it, particularly my sense of the trustworthy company, that we should shift more of our policy discussions and even legal discussions from asking, you know, does the public trust a technology? which is a pretty meaningless question to me, to instead, are the companies developing and deploying these technologies worthy of our trust? And that becomes a more interesting and important, in my view, useful question. So some combination of that, we should really have them on to justify their decision. <laughs> Why did you bring me here? Defend yourself. Well, I mean, I think that pivot mm -hmm. is really important. And it's related to a pivot that I see in a lot of the stuff I've been reading about your work on driverless cars with respect to the transfer of attention and therefore accountability, you mm -hmm. know, from someone sitting with their hands on the wheel to the company that programs the machine that makes this thing happen. 
So let's back it up a little bit here and let's lay out some basics. All right. You wrote this piece, Ethics of Artificial Intelligence and Transport. Yeah, like provide an exegesis, please. Woo. Yeah. So as part of a broader book on the ethics of AI, I was asked to write a chapter on transport. And I suppose that's like, maybe you write a guide to the world or a short summary of history. Where do you begin? And so I wanted to emphasize that ethics is not new, that it's not just that suddenly we have artificial intelligence and therefore we have ethical issues. In fact, ethics has been embedded into transportation in our transport choices for centuries, from the beginning of transport. And so I try to take these three different topics, like transport, ethics, and artificial intelligence, and first give them some meaningful bounds so that we can actually have a chapter rather than a series of books about it. And then second, highlight a few of the key issues that I saw that really presented ethical choices for this realm. How we approach automated driving as a solution of technology or as a solution to our policy dilemmas what it means to expect more or less from automated driving, what it means to give authority to a computer versus to a human in the context of transportation, and then what all of these mean for the changing dynamics of power among individuals and companies and governments, really in all of us. So let's defocus a bit here. <laughs> okay. You mentioned that in a piece you wrote for the New Scientist republished in Slate that ever since the 1930s, self-driving cars have been just 20 years away. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny you say many of these earlier visions depended on changes to physical infrastructure that never came about, such as special roads embedded with magnets. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure, however, you continue, mm -hmm. is more than just roads, pavements, signs, and signals. In a broad sense, it also includes the laws that govern motor vehicles, driver licensing requirements, rules of the road, principles of product liability, to name but a few. This is interesting in the same way that David Krakauer and Dan Rockmore just wrote a piece last year about how the coronavirus was not merely infecting bodies, but infecting supply chains and belief systems and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'd like to take that kind of multi-scale zoom with you here. And yeah, if you can kind of give a little bed now, now that we've planted the seed, if you can provide people mm -hmm. some context, like when we're talking about driverless cars, where are we now in February of 2022? Where are we? Where are we going? Yeah. Yeah. So the good news is that even though automated vehicles have been 20 years away since the 30s, in the last um, decade or so, they've only been five years away. Um, so I guess that's progress. A little sarcastic about that. Actually, there are places right now where there are legitimate automated vehicles. There's a suburb in Arizona. In San Francisco right now, there is a, a very limited deployment. And these aren't the kinds that you'll read about in most press releases where there's still a human supervising. These are actual automated vehicle deployments where the companies involved have said, we have enough confidence in the reliability of our system that our vehicles will not be supervised in real time by an individual human with the ability to directly intervene in the driving. 
Now, still, there are all sorts of caveats right there. So I roll my eyes at the hyperbole of language that we've seen in this field. One company decided to call its driver assistance system uh, full self-driving. Not only is it not full self-driving, it's not even self-driving because it requires a human driver. And another company felt obligated to respond by calling their actual automated system, not merely automated or autonomous, but fully autonomous. So I feel like we should preface everything we say in this with the word fully. There's just always been this inflation of expectation, which makes the exciting reality seem less exciting. And what that reality is, is actual demonstrated cases of technical feasibility even in the context of sidewalk delivery robots, some cases of potential real-world utility and scalability, like things are actually happening now. While some parts of the conversation assume that we've had that for decades, and other parts of the conversation assume we're not going to have that for decades, and so there's a real disconnect in, I think, language and expectation. And I think you're point about the way that we understand a new phenomenon sort of filtering through our worlds is a really important one. We see that as well in how we think about these systems, how we think about who or what drives them, uh, how we even think about the attribution of responsibility for harms that occur. Yeah. So in your piece at uh, Popular Science, you said, we'll still be vulnerable just in a different way. A hacker could infect an entire model of car or corrupt a map or interfere with real-time vehicle communications and traffic. The question now is how much of that risk are we willing to take in order to advance a technology that could potentially save a lot of lives? Now, you know, there's obvious appeal to just getting in bed and then the bed carrying you to your job and you like maybe your job is in a different state. Mm-hmm. Vistas opened up by this are profound and the economic possibilities are fascinating. But I mean, even in popular culture, you know, you've got Amazon's TV series Upload where the main character dies due to a uh, his driverless car being hacked Halting State by Charles Strauss, Mm -hmm. which explored police cars being remotely operated and appropriated. So this question of, again, responsibility, and it really comes to a fundamental kind of complex systems question about selfhood in a way, even in the state of things as they are now, right? Mm-hmm. Who is driving the car? Like who really is driving the car? Because you are not just the person that you think you are. You're embedded and enmeshed in all of these other networks. Oh, so much good stuff there. I feel like I want to answer a million different questions. I want to shout, first of all, the companies are driving the car. The companies, it's the companies. It's not an individual. It's not a vehicle. It's not the algorithm. It's the companies behind the technologies. But we can get to that. I want to say I so appreciate your focus on people and implications for people. You know, so often we throw out words like privacy or control. And what I really want to talk about are the, is the tension between autonomy and community, right? the ways that we empower individuals and the ways that we recognize that we still need to empower communities of those individuals. I'm really going to respond to your question. I see I'm just cramming things in because it's fascinating to me what you're saying is this idea of risk, right? So the history of take your pick, technology, law, policy, progress, 
is all about replacing one set of problems with a new set of problems and just really, really hoping that the new set in aggregate is less than the old set. When the car was introduced 120 some years ago, people said, oh, wow, the car, the internal combustion engine, it is the environmentally friendly way to get around. We have finally our solution to pollution. Of course, they were talking about horses, 100,000 horses in New York City, 1900, each deposited 25 pounds of manure a day. You all can do the math. That was some gross streets. And so this new technology comes around, promises to clean up pollution until fast forward a few years, we realize it hasn't. In fact, it's done the opposite in so many ways. And that's going to be the reality of any new technology. It's going to solve some problems. It's going to introduce some new problems. It's going to exacerbate and mitigate some of the existing ones, everything in between. Now, what's different, I think, are a couple of things. And the first is the long tail of unforeseeable risks. So not the ordinary kind of occurrences where we know that 100 people are going to die in U.S. roads today, but the more remote or the, or the less contemplatable, right? Maybe you're evacuating a city in a hurricane and suddenly there's an attack and all of the automated vehicles are unavailable. Or a company realizes there is a critical flaw in its system, shuts down for an hour or even 15 minutes, you know, hundreds of thousands of vehicles on the road at the time when people need to go to the emergency room, right? Or we discover that some of the active sensors that we've been using have either real public health consequences or are at least perceived to have public health dangers. These are the longer tail risks that are harder to contemplate. And I think that's the first part that makes this more difficult. The second is the systematization of risk. Now, this is less new. And, and the example you were providing was so salient. So what we're doing with automated systems is systematizing, is consolidating, is centralizing. The analogy I might use is back 1800s, there were a bunch of small family farms. There wasn't a lot of regulation of them. And if a cow got sick, then the family or the village might get sick. And then what we did is said, well, what if we took all that milk and we shipped it to a central processing plant and then we pasteurized it and we inspected the plant? That would be safer. We would catch these pathogens. We would have a better system. That's great when it works. Um, when it doesn't, that means the spoiled milk is going to thousands of people rather than dozens. So automation is much the same, right? We have possibly the chance of designing better, more effective, more redundant, ultimately safer or more societally beneficial systems. At the same time, when things go wrong, they could go worse wrong. Worse wrong is a term, right? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm thinking about this in terms of the conversation I had with Doyne Farmer, also Martin Sheffer's work, whom look at autocorrelation in complex systems and how autocorrelation is an early warning sign of collapse. As soon as everyone is following everyone else's trades, then it's time to sell your Bitcoin, right? And there's something about that in this as sleek and sexy as the idea of a flock of cars following each other at like six inch intervals is, you know, we're talking about the latencies in this network and everything you just said, the scale at which this is all being operated and centralized, 
means that it's not quite the same as like somebody falling asleep at the wheel on I-70. So thoughts on that? Yeah, it isn't the same. And yet what we know is that it's not one person falling asleep at the wheel. It's hundreds of thousands of those instances and things like them, right? There are 11 million crashes in the U.S. every year. This is a massive scale of individual failings and also to recognize systemic failings in the way we design our roads and our vehicles and everything together. So the magnitude of that problem is so great. And to the extent we're trying to control at the level of the individual driver, we're never going to succeed because humans are unique and special and weird. And automation gives us that opportunity to systematize, to have not hundreds of millions of drivers, but, you know, six drivers or eight drivers, depending on how many companies there are that are ultimately doing automated driving. And I think that's one of the real challenges because humans are just bad at perceiving risks, right? We exaggerate some and we minimize others. We pay attention every time a plane crashes, but we don't pay attention when at least that many people die in a week on the roads. And I think automation is going to capture our attention, particularly its failures in a way that these individual human failings do not. So it's both a technical conceptual problem and it's just a societal or psychological problem in terms of the risks that we perceive and evaluate, appreciate, and pay attention to. Yeah. So interestingly, again, with this issue of human attention and <laughs> risk management or mismanagement, I was reading your stuff and I was thinking a lot. I was a Google Glass Explorer back in 2013, 14. Really? And I was reminded of the story, the cautionary tale, I guess, of Celia Abadi. I think that's how you say her name, who was ticketed for using glass mm -hmm. in her heads up display to navigate while she was driving. But the ticket got dismissed because they had no way of proving that she was actually operating the heads up display while in the vehicle. But it was one of these things where California Vehicle Code 27602 prohibits operating a video display in front of the driver's headrest where it can distract the driver. Excuse me, electric cars now all seem to project displays up under the windshield. Like, how do you understand the nuances of the enormous gray area in the regulatory framework around, in some cases, decades or perhaps even a century old law and the way that these things are actually rolling out in practice? Yeah, yeah. I had this image of a Model T with a video display in it and I was cracking up. Yeah. <laughs> and you're cranking it, right? Like Uber wouldn't work. Uber wouldn't work <laughs> at all if you actually obeyed the drivers can't look at a screen rule, right? So, yeah. Oh, goodness. And maybe it shouldn't. Actually, we could talk about the responsibility of Uber for what its drivers do. So one of the important points you make is that there's all kinds of existing law that applies to new technologies, right? So often I'll hear people say, oh, well, there's no law on X. Oh, there was no law on automated driving. And my response is, well, yes, there is. There's generally applicable law, right? The vehicle code still applies. General criminal statutes still apply. You don't get to do dumb stuff and kill people with new technologies, and so we have all this existing law that sometimes fits very awkwardly. 
including in a number of states, these restrictions on what are often described as television displays or receivers. So there's a little bit of wiggle room in the actual statutory language. But, you know, they were intended to apply to prevent distraction. And when we have video devices that are intentionally distracting, say you're playing a video game in your car, well, that's one thing. When it is conducive to driving, that's another, and the statutes often contemplate that. The mistake that I think people often make is they say, oh, well, because there's no specific law, then the thing must be illegal. And that's also not true, right? We don't wake up in the morning and quickly consult our legal codes to see if we're allowed to go to the bathroom or then allowed to leave the house and walk down the sidewalk. We presume that we can do things that they're legal unless they're specifically illegal. And so that creates both a lot more flexibility for new technologies and a lot of these bizarre complications. As you've pointed out, these older laws kind of hit in ways that we didn't expect. Yeah, just to go back to your slate piece, I laughed out loud reading about how you mentioned that under Nevada law, the person who tells the self-driving vehicle to drive becomes its driver. And therefore, that person may send text messages, but may not drive drunk, even if sitting in a bar while the car is self-parking. So like you could be pulled over while you're in the bar. And this is so clearly a pile up in the meta sense between the pace at which these things are changing and the pace at which the regulation is capable of keeping up. Yeah. So just to say drunk drivers are why we can't have nice things, right? They mess things up for everybody, including the law. So one of the reasons why laws on driving and operation are just so convoluted generally is that courts have had to adapt them to reach weird situations. The person passed out drunk in the driver's seat with the keys in their hands. Well, are they driving? Or the person who throws the keys from the car as the officer is approaching. And so we have these very expansive definitions of driver and operator. And then states that have tried to statutorily or through regulation address automated driving specifically have then tried to generally map these background rules onto automated driving. So the initial approach in Nevada was, as you described, to say, well, the person who presses go is the driver. There have been a lot of other approaches depending on the state or the context. For example, at the UN level, there are various interpretations of a provision that says every vehicle must have a driver. Some say, oh, well, that's the human, or some say there is no driver, or some say, well, it's somebody who chooses a destination but isn't actually driving, akin to a passenger in a taxi. At the national level, the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, has interpreted some of its standards as describing the hardware and software when the standard refers to driver, that is the hardware software is the driver. Tennessee has gone a step further and decided to just call an automated driving system a legal person and presumably, I guess, to give it rights and responsibilities. Let's wait for that Supreme Court case. Don't be like Tennessee. Tennessee's great, but don't do that. You know, Other states have looked at people who are, are associated in some way with the operation and a model law for U.S. states 
says that the driver should be a company, a company that raises its hand and basically vouches for the lawful operation of the vehicle. All of these and others are possible interpretations of even who or what the driver is of one of these systems. Yeah, that's a mess. You know, it's funny. There's that bumper sticker, I'll believe corporations are people when Texas executes one. So what is the recourse here? as far as accountability. I mean, this is a two-part mm -hmm. thing, right? Because there's trust on the front end and accountability on the back end. And how dire is this situation and what progress needs to be made in like tort law, et cetera, for us to get to a point where we can actually handle these things adequately? Yeah. I thought the U.S. executed Arthur Anderson. And actually, this is a serious point. So, you know, you're asking in a sense about responsibility and just to back up for a minute, like responsibility is one of those vague words that gets thrown out all the time without necessarily everyone being on the same page. So we can talk about moral responsibility. We can talk about legal responsibility. Spoiler alert, they're not necessarily the same thing, right? See letters from a Birmingham jail. We can talk about technical responsibility, like what we expect actors to do in a system as is a matter of design. Within legal responsibility, you're talking about forms of liability. Liability is retrospective, backward-looking responsibility. Who gets in trouble when bad things happen? And that can be criminal, right? when the government prosecutes you or puts you in jail or fines you a lot. It can be civil, where the victim of an injury sues the person whose unreasonable behavior caused that injury and tries to get money for their harm. It can be you know, quasi-civil. This is where a police officer gives you a minor speeding ticket. Right? These are forms of liability. And I say this because which type we're talking about really matters. Tort law, which is civil law, who people can sue, is actually remarkably flexible because so much of that is based on the sense of reasonableness, right? Did somebody act reasonably? If not, did that unreasonable behavior or product injure you? And you know that, with a little bit more, is the basic conception of tort law, of negligence. And so courts have, over centuries, fashioned that to arguably keep up with changing technologies, whether that was the railroad or the car or mass products or certain services like insurance. The law has adapted, and I think with some challenges it will to these technologies as well. With respect to criminal law, that's a little more difficult in part because there are specific statutes that generally have to be satisfied that talk about you know, more specific elements, but also because so much of, I think, the criminal law has been based on finding you know, that one individual who was the last link in the causal chain to something bad. One of the examples of this might be the Uber crash in Arizona a few years ago. Are you familiar with that? I read about it in one of your pieces, yes. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, so this was a incident involving a test automated vehicle being tested by Uber Advanced Technologies Group, then part of Uber, under the supervision of a human safety driver. 
the vehicle struck and killed a pedestrian and the safety driver has been criminally charged for the pedestrian's death because in the conclusions of investigators, that safety driver was not paying full attention to the road. Now, that is ongoing, and I understand that the defense challenges some of the findings, and we're going to see where that goes. Now, that may or may not be an entirely appropriate prosecution. What catches my attention is that's the only one. So Uber independently settled a civil action brought by the pedestrian's family for what was reportedly a fairly large amount of money. Uber, however, was not criminally prosecuted for that crash, even though what investigators were able to document was a series of extraordinary bad and one might say reckless decisions by Uber. Everything from disabling safety systems that otherwise could have prevented this crash to putting a system out on the road that was so immature under the supervision of only a single safety driver when that wasn't necessarily the practice at the time to, again, potentially depending on what assertions one believes, not in any way properly equipping that driver to perform to do what they should have done when it was known to everybody that driver distraction is a problem and is particularly a problem in these kinds of more advanced systems. So these were a series of upstream decisions by individuals, engineers, managers, and the company as a whole, but criminal law has a harder time making sense of those. Now, I think their separate question is, you know, do we over-criminalize in the U.S.? Do we under-criminalize? What's the proper reach of criminal law? But once we've decided that it should extend to certain conduct, should it extend only to individual recklessness, or should it also extend in equal measure to recklessness further up the stream of design or management, and as well to companies that through their culture, their practices, their policies, are effectively making these decisions. I say, in effect, that Uber killed that pedestrian because everything was under Uber's control, whether their safety driver, their engineers, or their vehicle. And I'm not sure we have properly grappled with that. Yeah, you know, that's interesting in as much as it relates to this other section in your ethics of artificial intelligence and transport, where you go into a little bit more detail about the Dave and Hal conflict, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that you talk about the Boeing 737 MAX passenger plane crashes on the one hand, where the plane is fighting a competent pilot Mm -hmm. and it crashes anyway, even though the pilot's trying to do the right thing. On the other hand, you've got the 2016 truck hijack in Berlin where the attacker kills the driver, drives into a crowded Christmas market, but the truck comes to a stop within a relatively short 80 meters, which investigators attributed to the truck's automatic emergency braking system. And so it's such a mess. This seems like a good time to loop in. There's six layers, right? There's six classifications for automated vehicles. And you alluded to this earlier that when we're talking about automation, we're not always talking about the same thing. People are already driving cars that do cruise control so that they're following Mm -hmm. at a safe distance. They're staying in the center of the lane. 
a number of different features have come in as like crutches to the human driver over the last few decades. So what are the uh, Society of Automobiles and Engineers six levels? Well, let me ground this in a story of like six years ago, I was on a trip to Portugal and tiny little narrow cobbled streets in Portugal. And it occurred to me that probably driverless cars will never make it in Lisbon because it's just the navigability of these byways is a challenge even for human drivers. I mean, they were made for foot traffic, you know? So there is a context dependency here in terms of the amount of automation that's even possible, regardless of the legal framework that would enable or prevent it. Yeah, and it may be that some things become technologically possible, but aren't technologically reasonable. That maybe the conclusion should be, well, we shouldn't have two-ton vehicles of any kind going down these streets, whether they are automated and especially whether they are human-driven. What you are referring to, though, is what SAE J3016, this is the document that defines the levels of automation, refers to as the operational design domain. So the environmental conditions for which a particular feature is designed, whether it's freeways at low speeds or particular neighborhoods during the day when it's not snowing or you know anywhere and everywhere. And the fancy word is ODD, Operational Design Domain, ODD for short. I find that it's almost like a point of rite of passage that every paper seems to have to just describe the levels of automation, whether or not they're relevant. And so if I would just make a call to anyone who's tempted to start your paper that way, and I've done the same, mea culpa, but you know, I co-drafted them. So authorship pride, all that stuff. But my call is just like, step back and think what distinctions actually matter for the point I'm trying to make, for the analysis I'm trying to do. It might be that the levels are really important for that. It might be that merely what we need to distinguish between is assisted driving of the kind that we have today that you were mentioning and automated driving, the kind that we largely do not, that that distinction may be sufficient. When we're talking about issues like privacy, it may be that it really doesn't matter who or what's driving the vehicle, what matters is the data that are being collected. So focus on the relevant distinctions. I would offer broadly a few ways of thinking through these levels and associated terms. The first is, what is the type of trip? That is, when you get in a vehicle, what are you planning to do? And the first is where you must drive for the entire trip. Uh, Now, by drive, I mean rather narrowly, Right, paying attention to the vehicle, to the road, and to the environment so that you can steer, brake, and accelerate as needed. That's a narrow definition. Legally and even technically, you may have a broader definition. But one is you're driving the whole trip. The other is you will need to drive if prompted in order to maintain safety. So you might not drive, but at some point you may be prompted and you'll have to step in. Another is you will need to drive if prompted, not for safety, but in order to reach your destination. If you don't step in and drive, the system is going to pull off to the side of the road, which means you'll be reasonably safe, but you're not going to end up. Where are you right now, Michael? Santa Fe. You're not going to end up in Santa Fe. At least I'm not, if that's where I'm heading. The next kind of trip is where you will not need to drive for any reason. 
but you may if you want. Right? So the option exists. And then the final is you will not need to drive for any reason and you may not drive. It is not possible. There is no steering wheel for you to grab even if you wanted to. And so that lends itself to the types of vehicles, right? Vehicles you can drive, the ones that look like cars and trucks today, and then the vehicles you can't drive, the driverless shuttles that are increasingly being piloted across cities around the world. And then finally, that brings us to not types of trips or types of vehicles, but types of vehicle features. And this is where the famous or depending on your perspective, infamous levels of driving automation come in. Right? For the lower levels, zero, one, and two, you're driving. These are merely assisting you, which means these features work unless and until they don't. That's not much of a promise. And at these levels, right, you're driving, you might be assisted with either steering or speed or with both steering and speed. It's when we cross over to levels three through five that we're really into automated driving, right? So this maps back sort of onto the trips. You're not driving, but you might need to drive either to maintain safety at level three or at level four, either to reach your destination or if you can't drive, if you're in a vehicle, you can't drive, you will not be able to reach every destination. So the car will say, I'm sorry, Michael. I'm sorry, your name's not Dave. I'm just not going to take you down that street in Lisbon. It's outside my operational design domain. Would you like to continue going around the airport in Santa Fe? Right? Like that would be the limits. And that describes the operational design domain. The theoretical hypothetical pony in the sky is level five, where you're not driving and you can reach any destination that we would expect a human to be able to reasonably reach. That is a long time away, but as a practical matter, it might not really matter. Who cares if there's a forest road somewhere in Montana that your car can't reach if you can go everywhere you need to? Yeah, I'm certainly, you know, Melanie Mitchell has addressed that in a lot of her work as far as the long tail of rare but intense failure modes for that kind of a situation. Yeah. And that's why it's easier to cut some of that out with the operational design domain and say, well, we're just focusing on, as I say, some combination of slow speed, simple environments and semi-supervised operations. We're doing the easier parts. And so companies are likely to compete not on safety, but on this operational design domain on where the system works. And as a company gets increasingly confident in the reliability of its system, it will expand the domains in which it is available. So actually, you know, this notion of the concession of control and of choice, you know, in the way that you know, I'm just sitting here using an Apple computer, right? And so there are just things that are preset that, you know, Cory Doctorow, who spoke mm -hmm. at our Interplanetary Festival back in 2018, he talks about this a lot. About sorry, the way that Interplanetary Festival? Oh, yes. Actually, Jake Harper, who was working for Zooks, was part of our 2019 event. It was like bringing together music and scientists and it was great. These people sound amazing. Well, we have a sister podcast, Alien Crash Site, that's committed to the thought experiment of what would their guests like to find in the wake of a hypothetical visitation? What technology do they believe would grant them the ability to learn the most they possibly could from that kind of a thing wow. in the like uh, Strugatsky Brothers stalker 
kind of sense. Okay, like two classes that I'm going to teach sometime. One is the law of time travel, and the other is the law of alien encounters. And it's going to be just like you described, this thought experiment where we figure out what law would actually do. So like, let's talk about that later. Well, 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 well. I should put you in touch with Caitlin McShay, who directs the festival and hosts that (laughs) podcast. But yeah, so there's this whole thing about, again, like where the locus of control actually resides. And, you know, the fact that I'm sitting here on this computer that has really throttled what it's actually capable of doing in order to provide me with a tidy consumer Mm -hmm. experience is very much like the operational design domain that you're talking about. But that's where it gets messy in an area that we haven't really discussed as much as I would like, which is the public-private divide. And this is something that you explore in your work about the way that driverless cars may move certain things out of the sort of physical domain and into the digital domain so that the automotive companies are making decisions that were traditionally being made by law enforcement agencies or that there may require new layers of cooperation between police, private operators, automotive companies. I remember several years ago, Ford said, oh, we've got GPS in all these vehicles. We know when you're speeding. Mm-hmm. You know, We're not going to rat on you, but eventually they probably will have to, right? Or they will at least decide that, as you mentioned in some of your writing, that a particular user is not allowed into the car. So that's a very uh, interesting thing here that I think, you know, the idea of being sort of locked out of what might be your own property. These are complicated questions. And I'd like to hear you kind of expound on the folds of the complexities of that. Wow. Yes. So first of all, automotive companies, and for that matter, internet companies with access to your phone know far more about you than merely whether you're speeding. And there are instances where companies will act on information like that already. Yeah. The other is what you're really getting to with what it means to have choice or control. And this is true vis-a-vis technologies and vis-a-vis companies. So even in instances where a human might think that they're driving, it may be in the future that, oh, the vehicle systems are intervening so frequently to stop them from doing stupid things to keep the car from spinning out or to keep the car in the lane that really their belief they're driving is basically an illusion. So many of these choices can be framed and limited and controlled through technologies, by technologies, by companies, through those technologies. And I agree with what you were describing that we should, again, focus less on the technologies and more on who is being empowered by them. And that will often be the companies that are developing and deploying and making choices about the choices we'll have, the control we will have. What might this mean practically? Well, if you have a small number of automated driving companies, right? If Again, our number of drivers goes from several hundred million to six, they will have incredible power over the way that we physically get around. And there's been lots of discussion about the power of platform or intermediary companies in how we digitally interact. But the physical world still matters too. And you know, the hypothetical that I give is imagine that you as a pedestrian step in front of a vehicle, lawfully or unlawfully. The vehicle stops as it should, but it also uses its cameras to get a 
pretty confident sense of who specifically you are. And at that point, the company has some choices. It could do nothing. It could send your photo and name over to law enforcement. It could just boot you from its service. Say, well, you know what? We're giving you a timeout. You stepped in front of our vehicle. No more rides for you for a week. Or if it happens to control other, let's say, social media sites, it says, and you know, no more email for a week. Oh, that sounds good, actually. No more email for a week. But no, as a, as a punishment, as a punishment. And this is a form of potential private enforcement. I shared this years ago at a talk where the next speaker got up and literally called me an idiot. And then a few years later, the same group was deeply concerned that, in fact, there were some people being removed from social media for reasons that they did not necessarily agree with. So like, these are things that not just are possibilities today, but if you go back in history, have been, been possibilities for a long time, whether it was company towns or the power of the railroads that led to the very notion of common carrier responsibilities and right of access. That is recognizing that we may need to ensure that the public can access the public domain in a way that might include nominally private spaces. Yeah, it's funny since you're feeling glib that, uh, you know, (laughs) just thinking about like it brings deplatforming to a whole new level when you're talking about an actual physical chassis that has wheels on it that you're riding around as a platform, you know. You're Literal not allowed, platform. You're not allowed to get on it. Yeah. You touched on this just a moment ago. There's a related issue, which is the issue, again, to hearken back to the problems that mm-hmm. people had with Google Glass and the complete flop that that was as a retail consumer device. Data protection, because as you say in one of your pieces, many cars and trucks available today already collect driving data through onboard sensors, computers, and cellular devices. But imagine taking a dozen smartphones, turning on all their sensors and cameras, linking them to your social media accounts, and affixing them to the inside and outside of your vehicle. I don't think most people in the driverless car conversation, I mean, most people are thinking about the trolley problem, right? And they're not thinking about... This whole other thing, which is, you know, something that Kevin Kelly, who actually wrote about SFI in his book, Out of Control, about emergent engineering back in the 90s, you know, he talked on Wired a few years ago about the mirror world and how, you know, we're creating this perfect Borgesian duplicate of everything with all of these LIDAR cameras that we're placing everywhere. Again, on the one hand, ooh, sleek, futuristic. On the other hand, what? The very question, I remember one time I was in the mall with my Google Glass and there was a guy waiting in line to pick up an iPhone 5, which records your fingerprint. And he looked up at me in the line outside the Apple store and he said, don't record me, bro. And I was like, you're on (laughs) surveillance camera right now. (laughs) Like, these are problems for which I don't believe that humans really are well-equipped. And I'm curious what you think about the collapse of the physical and the digital and public and private in this way, like the way that what new affordances are we going to have to come up with in our understanding of what public space actually means and the rights of the individual in public space? I mean, that's a huge question. And I'm going to just drop it on you as the sort of climactic goose egg of this whole thing. (laughs) It's quite an image. Goose egg with sensors on it. Yeah, remember when 
cameras on cell phones was a thing and you couldn't bring your cell phone into the gym locker room. Google Glasses is an interesting case study sort of in its own right. But one of the things I often marvel at is, is how the privacy conversation or the ethics conversation goes, oh, no, we really care about people's privacy. But if they don't realize that, then they're not going to get nice things. And then we won't be able to bring all these really cool technologies to the fore. And, and you know, this comes from the companies themselves. It comes from regulators as well. There's sort of insistence on, oh, no, we have to make people really confident that we're protecting their privacy. I think that's backwards, for better or worse. That reality is we say that privacy is really important. I'm not sure that, by and large, that's reflected in our choices when those choices really matter, at least for a significant portion of the population. And the goal of any technology I suppose, unless your Facebook is not to get to 100%, right? It's to get to a meaningful number of uses. And so initially said that, you know, smartphones were dumb. Why would I need that? And then they discovered that, oh, well, they could do more work away from the office or they could watch cat videos or they could see their grandkids. And then suddenly everybody used smartphones and whatever privacy qualms there were sort of receded. And the same would be true of Gmail or so many of these other inventions. And so I don't think that the privacy concerns are going to be a barrier to the technology. I think that the technologies in their adoption are going to shift our window of public discourse without us ever coming to terms with it. That's the incremental approach to technological rollout will mean we never really grapple with what we want as a society and then measure how technologies assist in that or detract from that. I'd much rather have a substantive discussion about what does privacy mean? What are the interests, whether it's community or autonomy that are helped or hurt by certain conceptions of privacy? And then given that, how do we envision our world and how does technology fit in? Now, those decisions are going to change necessarily, but at least then we could benchmark things. We could pause and reflect and see where we as a society are going rather than being merely reactive on so many of these issues. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here, which one is Whoa. likely to do while snoozing in the lounge <laughs> of a driverless vehicle. Large operational design domain, so to speak. Yeah. So what haven't we covered, Brian? And where would you direct people who feel the urgency of these concerns and they want to learn more? Yeah, rather selfishly. That's kind of you. I would invite them to read any of my publications. Those are at uh, newlypossible.org. That's newlypossible.org. I We'll drop like them in I'm the show NPR notes also. Right yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of so much more we could talk about, I would say that a lot of discussions could benefit from some real important grounding in a few ways. First of all, the status quo is not perfect. The technologies aren't going to be a panacea. They're also not going to be perfect, but neither is today. And grappling with that, I think, really would improve discourse on these issues. The second is that not everything is unprecedented. 
we have lots of prior examples that, like any analogy, are useful until they're not. And a lot of value is figuring out what we can get from those examples and then what truly might be unprecedented. What really is unique about increasing automation, about whatever artificial intelligence is? Like, What are the truly new challenges and opportunities? And then as we think about that, it's also really important to not look at those in isolation. That is at the point that we could take an automated vehicle, you know, to the store and pick up a pair of glasses, you know, maybe we could also have a delivery robot bring them to us or a drone, or we could go down to our 3D printer and print off our glasses, or we won't need glasses at all. And these are just technological changes. At the same time, society is going to be changing. Laws are going to be changing. Our norms, our values, economics. Any technology needs to be understood in terms of broader societal change, not in isolation under the erroneous assumption that everything else remains fixed. That's really scary. That's hard to do. But it's really important, and I think it's really exciting, to imagine a much fuller future. Awesome. What else is there to say? Thank you so much for joining us <laughs> thank, on the show. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.